Welcome to On the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I work on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm also writing a book about the terrors of such threats. As we record this podcast, the UK Parliament has just voted to approve the Brexit deal. Tomorrow, the 31st of December 2020, the UK leaves the single market and they use other forms of cooperation. This turn of events seemed unlikely even five years ago, and now it has happened. My guest, Edward Lucas, is a passionate Remainer and Europhile, and indeed someone who has spent a lot of time in the EU's newer member states, long before they were member states or were even allowed to entertain thoughts in that direction. Edward was a correspondent in various Warsaw Pact countries during the Cold War, as well as afterwards, and witnessed these countries' struggles to emerge from the Soviet bloc to become democracies and market economies and to enter bodies such as the EU. But we won't discuss the Cold War today, even though I'd love to. Instead, I'm going to tell you where the Freedom Wine hashtag originated. Freedom Wine, as you might have seen, is the push for people to buy Australian wine after the Chinese government imposed tariffs so punitive that the biggest export market for Australian wine is no more. The Chinese government blamed Australian undercutting of the market, but the real reason for the tariffs seems to be that the Australian government had asked for an impartial inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. So China punished the Australian government by capping the knees of Australia's wine industry, which, as we all know, is one of Australia's most important sectors. And this is one of the many ways a country with hostile intentions can weaken another country without resorting to violence. And when it comes to the wine tariffs, there's nothing Australia can do about it. But soon after the tariffs were imposed, the Freedom Wine hashtag appeared on Twitter. And the person who came up with the idea was none other than Edward Lucas. So Edward, why Freedom Wine? Well, this idea dates back a few years when there were sanctions against Lithuania and Poland imposed by the Kremlin. And I saw that the Poles had a hashtag inside Poland called Yedz Yabłko, eat apples, to try and help the Polish apple growers because Russia is a huge market for Polish apples. And the Lithuanian cheesemakers had been badly hit. So I coined the phrase or the hashtag freedom cheese. To make it shorter, I used the digit three because freedom sounds quite like freedom the way Lithuanians speak English. And that was quite successful. And I was actually gave evidence to parliament. Some parliamentary committee was holding an inquiry about relations with Russia. And I produced Polish apples and Lithuanian cheese for the committee and said, if you really want to fight Russian aggression, counter-Russian aggression, these are the sort of things you need to do. And so that's always been in the back of my mind. And then when I saw Australia getting whacked by the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party, as you just mentioned, I thought this would be a good idea to resurrect this. And so the hashtag Freedom Wine was born. It has become quite popular. So it demonstrates the power of, of citizen activism. But still, it's, it's just individual people choosing to buy Australian wine. Many I saw bought it for Christmas to make a statement. Do you think the Chinese Communist Party will be impressed? Well, I think that they find any sort of resistance immensely irritating. They have what I call hegemonic discourse control. They want to control the discussion of China and anything relating to China anywhere in the world. They think that's their business and they want to exert influence as strongly as possible. And that's actually really what's at root of the Australian thing, that the Australian political system, academic system, media system is full of people who criticize China and China doesn't like that. 
you're right, the tweet, it was a very popular tweet. I think I've never tweeted anything that's done quite so well. It had nearly a million impressions and tens of thousands of clicks and retweets and things. So it was a, it was a really, it did take off and other countries have picked it up. I saw Taiwan picked it up. That's another one of my causes that I try and help. And I think that the, the key point here is that every little dent in this hegemonic discourse control weakens it and makes China not look invincible. And that's really what the Chinese Communist Party wants. They want the, the idea that resistance is useless. We're going to win anyway, so just get used to it. And so the simple action of buying a bottle of Australian wine is saying, I don't agree with that. You try and bully Australia. I will spend my $10, 10 euros, 10 pounds, or perhaps even more if you're splashing out on doing stuff that will be pleasurable if you, if you drink alcohol, but also signals resistance and solidarity with Australia. Now, of course, the immediate parallel that comes up, I think, in, in most people's minds is people behind the Iron Curtain. Obviously, it wasn't possible to, to buy wine in support of anybody behind the Iron Curtain, but it was possible to show support. Do you see any parallels between the situation today in China? Given it's, it's a market economy, it's, it's not like the Warsaw Pact, but it is an authoritarian country in the same way that many of the Warsaw Pact countries were back in the day. Do you see any parallels between that situation today and the Warsaw Pact situation back then, especially with as it concerns support, outside support for people trying to do the right thing? Well, I think the Cold War was quite different because the Soviet Union or the Soviet Empire was not very heavily integrated with the outside world. We didn't sell much stuff there, particularly they bought grain because their farms are so inefficient, and they sold gas. And there was a bit of a row in the 1980s about whether we should have a Soviet gas pipeline going to Europe, which sort of echoes the row we're having now about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline on the Baltic Sea. I was just reading the other day, as one does, some old East German propaganda leaflets, and they had exactly the same arguments we hear today about Soviet, as it was then, gas being exported to West Germany, the reason why that was a good thing. And we're having the same discussion today. The big difference is that China is heavily integrated. It's a very big market for Western exports. It's a big investment destination for Westerners. It's a big exporter to the West, and it invests a lot in other countries. And so it's much harder to work out what to do if you want to exert economic pressure. And there's an argument, which I don't share, but it's a respectable one, that you get, as the Germans would say, Wandel durch Ernährung, that you, the more you trade with China, the more you bind them into the, the world system and the harder it becomes for them to adopt a confrontational stance. I don't actually agree with that. And we've certainly seen Western countries saying we don't want Huawei in our 5G networks, for example. And there are sanctions against companies and indeed individuals who are involved in the terrible repression that's going on against the Uyghurs and others. So there's a lot of you know, politics involved in trade. But I think the simplest thing is when China's used the trade weapon, then you can try and cushion the blow. And so it's Australian wine today. It could be you know, New Zealand lamb tomorrow or something that you know, Canadian canola. It so happens that wine is something that individuals buy a lot of. It's much harder if you want to help someone whose coal exports have been hit, there's a limit to the amount of coal that you want to buy or can buy and need, might want to buy for climate change reasons. But I think with wine is a sort of perfect way of symbolizing this sort of thing. And I, I should say I've also done it for, with Moldova. I've promoted Moldovan wine when Moldova was hit by Russian sanctions. But I think there's a difficulty here, which is that to an extent, it's these wine exporters' own fault. They weren't made to sell wine to, to China. 
And they could have said, let's concentrate on selling our wine to democratic countries, which won't do this sort of thing. And it may be less lucrative in the short term, but it's more dependable in the long term. And so my worry about getting people to help the Australian wine exporters out of a hole is that this was actually a hole that those Australian wine exporters dug with their complacency and and greed and naivety. So my sympathy for Australia is huge. My sympathy for the wine exporters is, is slightly limited. So I prefer this to be seen as a sign of solidarity with Australia in general, rather than the wine industry in particular. And there are, of course, a related case, which is what we are discovering about slave labor in China and, and the extent to which Western manufacturers use that slave labor in their supply chains, even if it's not directly. And it raises the question, do we as Westerners have, have a responsibility in the same way we may have in the case of, of Australia to support the Australian government by buying Australian wine, even though focusing so heavily on the Chinese market may have been foolish in the first place. But do you think, do we as consumers do have a responsibility to communicate to manufacturers of our favorite consumer goods that we are not going to support their production in China using slave labor? And if so, what, what can we do? Should we stop buying iPhones? Should we stop buying clothes from certain retailers? Do you see potential for that? Is it, is it desirable? I think it is desirable to try and link human rights to the way we spend our money. And I think particularly trying to dissuade Western clothing companies from buying cotton that has been picked by forced labor and political prisoners in what China calls the Xinjiang region, which the locals would call occupied East Turkestan. But the, the Uyghurs are being forced into cotton picking, almost like slaves in the American South 180 years ago. And this is a serious issue. I think that we can't expect a full economic decoupling from, from China. China's just too integrated in our supply chains. And I'm not even sure, even if it was possible, whether it would be desirable, because I think we need to keep some sort of economic ties with China to show that there are benefits to a constructive relationship with the West, just as a penalty to a destructive and confrontational one. And I don't think casting hundreds of millions of Chinese people into poverty, even if we could do it, would necessarily ruin Xi Jinping's day. I think there are, we want to try and split the regime rather than, than sort of confront it head on, probably. But I think that the really serious setback we've had here is the EU's decision to go ahead with its investment agreement with China. And I think you mentioned Brexit at the beginning, and we have come to the end of that sad saga. But the, just as we have a Biden administration coming in, the EU's done the single least constructive thing it could do by trying to sort of race to getting its deal done with China, which undercuts the possibility of a sort of combined transatlantic and eventually also transpacific stance on economic governance and, and trade with regard to China. So I'm deeply annoyed and, and frustrated by this decision by the EU and struggling to understand what the rationale is for it. Yeah, I think many people are struggling to understand the rationale. But these issues, as diverse as they are, as different as they are, all boil down to the same thing. The geopolitical struggles of today shouldn't just be handled by the government involved, but they, they affect us consumers as well, us ordinary citizens as well, in a completely different way than was the case during the Cold War. What could ordinary citizens in, in the West do to support people behind the Iron Curtain other than sending letters of support? Today, we can show support by, for example, not buying products that have been manufactured involving slave labor, even though, as, as you say, that may hurt the slave laborers more than it hurts the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. But 
it does boil down to this reality where ordinary citizens do have a role. And something I'm concerned about is that maybe we are too apathetic, we as citizens, because we are not used to playing a role in national security. We are just used to looking after ourselves. Do you think, is there, is there potential for this sort of groundswell of concern of activism among people in, in, in developed countries that can encourage change in, in some less democratic countries? Well, I think you've, got, you've always got to be optimistic and hope that we're going to have change because otherwise you're accepting we're going to surrender. And I don't, I don't do that. I think that you know, we vote every few years at the ballot box, but we vote every day, usually several times a day, when we spend money. And that choice of how you spend your money or don't spend it is a profound political choice. And you can say, I don't want to eat meat because I think meat's bad, or I don't want to buy goods from this company because I don't like the way they behave. And these are all political choices. And if you decide not to, that's also a political choice. And you can decide where your investment, if you save for a pension, you can say, I don't want to invest in alcohol, tobacco and firearms. Or you can say, I do want to, because I think those are good things. But these these are all political choices and we, we, we need to make them. I think that with regard to China, the willingness to accept the threat, which, and I do think it's a threat from China, has been quite slow. And I remember during the 1970s that South Africa was a real hot button issue among people of what was then my generation. I was a teenager and people wouldn't try not to buy South African fruit and they didn't buy, they didn't want to invest in Barclays because Barclays had didn't want to keep their money in Barclays because they didn't want because Barclays had links with the South African apartheid regime. And I think it did have an effect. We had sporting boycotts and other things as well. I would like to think that the Chinese treatment of the minorities in China is far worse than the white minority in South Africa's treatment of the black majority. There, bad enough there that was. But there was no equivalent of the slave labor camps that we see now, the mind control and the repressive technology and so on. So I think that there's, if we got outraged about that, then we can get outraged about this now, and we can use similar weapons. And I think there's also the traditional political warfare weapons of the Cold War, propaganda, for example. We, we can um, broadcast to China, try and get our message across in there, make it clear that our beef is not with the Chinese people, but with the Chinese regime. And we can write letters of protest. And I was delighted to see Amnesty International picking up the cause of the Chinese video blogger, the citizen journalist Zhen Zhang, who's just been, now has been sentenced, but Amnesty International had her on their list of prisoners of conscience and urging people to write to the prosecutor. I've been also organizing another campaign for the two Michaels. This is Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, who are two Canadians who've been held hostage for more than a year in China, and much more than a year, nearly two years in China, as a retaliation for the Canadian detention under house arrest pending extradition of a Huawei executive. And these two Canadians have been treated abominably, very little consular access, regular interrogations, no natural light, no exercise. And so I've encouraged everybody I can to send a Christmas card to their local Chinese ambassador, but include in the Christmas card two Christmas cards for the two Michaels and politely ask the, the ambassador to forward them. This wasn't my idea. This was my friend Charles Parton, who's a British China watcher. But again, even if it's a few thousand or a few tens of thousands, or perhaps if we're lucky, a hundred thousand cards arrive in the bureaucratic Chinese system, they will have to be logged, they'll have to be, someone will have to say what was on the card and we know who sent it. And even if they don't reach the two Michaels in their grievous incarceration, at least we're signaling to the Chinese bureaucracy and ultimately to the Chinese Communist Party leadership, 
we notice what you're doing, we mind about it, you're not getting away with it. You know, someone out there actually cares about this. And a similar case of one of many during the Cold War was obviously Václav Havel, who endured harassment for sure and had to serve time in prison. But he writes himself that he was spared at worst fate by the fact that the Czechoslovak authorities knew that the world was watching him because obviously he had a worldwide audience for his writings. And as it happens, as we speak, it's almost to the day, 31 years since Václav Havel became president of Czechoslovakia. You met him a number of times and, and obviously uh, watched, as it was in the CSSR, during the, the really bad times. Which lessons do you think we can learn from the fact that he went from prisoner to president in just a few years? So which lessons can we learn from that today? Well, I think that the first thing is that you know, campaigning for political prisoners does make a difference. And it wasn't just Václav Havel, who I was very fond of, but also many other people I got to know behind the Iron Curtain and, and after in its aftermath when it fell, who said it, it really made a difference when Amnesty International took up my case, my conditions improved. And there were people in the, you know, who were in the depths of the gulag and suddenly life would get better. And that was because they had been people like my mother, who I remember from the in the late 70s, I think, writing a letter for writing letters to Brezhnev on behalf of jailed Baltic dissidents, Yuri Cook, for example, a chemist who in fact died in died in the gulag. But for others, it made a difference. Neoli Santonite, for example, the Lithuanian Catholic activist, her conditions improved. And it meant it wasn't politically cost-free for the Soviet regime to incarcerate these people. And so I think that that's one big lesson. Another one is that, however bleak it may seem, you never know what's going to happen next. And if anyone had told me back in the our kitchen in Oxford in whatever it was, 1980, that in less than 10 years, the Baltic states would be run by people who wanted independence, and that a year later they would be independent, they would have regained their independence, and a few years after that they'd be on the track to join the EU and NATO, I'd have said, what are you smoking? And yet it happened. So even when we're dealing with the seemingly absolutely daunting, massive mafia of the, of the Chinese Communist Party, just remember how quickly things can change. And Václav Havel's letters from prison, although written in terrible conditions, radiate a kind of steely optimism his letters to Olga, I should say, letters to, from prison was Adam Michnik, but another equally steely optimist. Yeah, these people didn't give up even in the bleakest times during the Cold War, neither should we. That's a very good note to end on. Thank you all for listening. And as ever, please feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify. Many thanks, Edward. And many thanks to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who is doing pioneering work. See you on the cast.